Welcome. Today is March 12th, 2023, and you're listening to Deaf Radio. This week, we've got uh, a few stories here from uh, from around the web. Uh, first up, there's an article titled Discord or the Death of Lore. And, you know, just to summarize, summar- I can summarize this article by just reading off a screenshot that appears in the article. <clears throat> Why should read a, that screenshot, Matt? Yeah, it's a screenshot of a user in Discord um, communicating with some kind of like project man- maintainer. And he says, are there any plans to actually add documentation to the website? And the maintainer says, at this point, if I'm being honest, it is more likely that I remove the tab from the website, the Discord servers as the de facto source of documentation and help. So the gist of the article is that more and more information on the web is kind of being moved into these information silos, in particular Discord, that are not accessible outside of Discord. So they're not indexable by search engines. They're difficult to discover. You have to sign up to Discord just to get access to the information. Uh, you know, it's proprietary. And this is a sad, sad development from my perspective. Um, I've experienced this a lot. You know, I discover a project and it looks really cool, but there's like almost no information on the web. You've got to open up Discord, you got to click this invite to the server, you know, there's all these weird little emojis you got to click on and rules and stuff. And it's like, react with this and that. And I'm like, what the heck's going on? I just want to read the documentation. And it's just kind of frustrating to me. I don't know how you feel about this, Rick, but that's kind of my takeaway. Uh, You know, I, I think back to news groups when that was that was how people conversed on the web that you know there weren't web forums um there wasn't phbbb there were news groups and one of the cool things about news groups is that they were you know they they were like i don't know exactly like at the apex who ran each news group there were probably some maintainers um, but the, the good news groups had FAQs and those tended to be kept up to date. So, mm-hmm. uh, I remember I was, I was really into, um, car stereos in high school. I came across, uh, I don't know, alt.cars.audio or something and, um, went in there and learned a whole bunch about, um, you know, just how wiring and impedance and all that stuff works going through the FAQs, like, it's like, here's the summary of all the things we've talked about or, and, and it was almost a defensive measure because, um, you know, uh, what they called it, the, uh, is it called eternal September? Is that what it's called? That sounds when, familiar, uh, but I can't remember what that actually refers to. Yeah. Well, you know, in the nineties and I guess early knots, uh, early aughts before the internet was mainstream every September, a new group of freshmen would go to college, they'd go online, they'd hit the news groups, and then they'd just start flooding them with oh, you know, all kinds of, of uh, unwashed uh, idiocy. And as a defensive measure, the, the news group maintainers would build out these FAQs. And they would just say, 
And, you know, they were a little blunt about it back then. Like, hey, read the FAQ. Did you read the FAQ? Did you read mm-hmm. the FAQ? Um, yeah. With Discord, what I, you know, what I would love to build and what I can't build because of this closed nature of it, you know, there's no open crawl of Discord. I would love to throw an LLM at a Discord server and gather up the most popular topics that have been discussed and have Hmm. some kind of indexing and some way to explore rather than just being here in the now and, you know, throwing emojis and maybe asking a question, hoping somebody's there to be able to categorically explore the, the repository in that server. That's what I'd like. I'm afraid to do it because I think, you know, if I do that, uh, I'm going to get banned or Mm -hmm. Discord's not going to like me, you know, servers have to opt into it. I don't know. I think it's a huge opportunity for Discord themselves to do something like that. And this is, you know, goes back to that wall garden problem of, you know, hoping, hoping that the the keepers of the garden, um, you know, do what we want. Yeah, that's that's actually a really good idea, and I and I wouldn't be surprised if that's not too far off the horizon for Discord. That seems like a no brainer for them to implement something like that. I don't know how expensive it would be. I know most of the people that use Discord are using the free version. I can't imagine what their cloud costs are right now, and I have no idea what their financials are like, but that would be that would certainly be good for humanity. I think. I mean, the next step would be actually putting it on the web so that you don't have to use discord to access that information. But yeah, there's, you know, with discord, people end up asking the same questions over and over again, and you you get the same response, read the FAQ, check out this channel. It's got the FAQ. And if you could just, like you said, take an LLM to the server and create sort of like an interactive FAQ, that would be pretty cool. And that would give me a reason to actually want to use Discord. There's a, a project uh, called Linen, linen.dev that... Um, mm, yeah, I've heard of them. Uh, they got about 1,300 stars in GitHub. Um, they build themselves as a Google searchable community chat tool mm-hmm. built as an alternative to closed tools like Slack and Discord. And one of the ways that they motivate people to use Linen over, over Discord is the SEO benefit that it automatically SEOifies things you're talking about and it's going to bring people in. Yeah, right now SEO is still king. Uh, so that's like a big motivating factor. But I feel like Google and search engines are becoming gradually less relevant, but that's kind of way off and on the horizon. Yeah, that could be that could be upwards of like two months from now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, at the rate things are going, sure. Okay, next story: FDIC takes over Silicon Valley Bank. This is huge, huge news. This is this is a yeah. This is a little. Well, dent in the universe. So for those that are unaware, and I can't imagine if you're listening to this, you are unaware of this news, but uh, SVB, Silicon Valley Bank, that's a huge, huge uh, bank, not just for tech startups, but just in general, but most of their clients are tech startups uh, and other kind of tech 
uh, on um, sort of VCs and things like that. So earlier this week, I believe it was Monday, there was a bank run on Silicon Valley Bank. And, and what a bank run is, is when everybody tries to withdraw their deposits at once. And the reason that's a problem, <clears throat> not just for SVB, but for any bank is uh, banks tend to have their capital tied up in liabilities like bonds and um, securities and things like that. So they can't just they can't just they don't have the liquidity to just hand over the money. They do they can cover maybe like ten percent or something like that, but um, they can't handle like 40 percent as was the case uh, this week. <clears throat> and so, you know, SVB they uh, they had most of their uh, capital tied up in these long term bonds and these uh, mortgage backed securities, which they bought kind of at the height of when the interest rates were super low and when they were sort of overvalued and, and during this bank run, they had to try to sell a lot of this stuff. And of course now they're not worth as much because interest rates are so high. And, you know, if you're, if somebody's selling something to you and you know that they're selling it because they absolutely have to, you're not going to pay market price for it. So anyway, they were selling these securities uh, at a loss and, <clears throat> it just kind of spiraled out of control and uh, eventually the FDIC took over. It's, um, you know, it, it, kind of reading about it, it, it sounded to me like the, you know, the, the risk strategy that the bank was following, it wasn't necessarily bad. No, um, that's what was my, of course, I'm not like in the finance world, but that was, yeah, kind I'm of not my a banker. Let me let me try. Well. I'm not a banker. This just strikes to me like this was bad communication. I did see an interesting chart though, that showed how, how different SVB was from other banks in the country, like JP Morgan and them. I can't remember exactly what the metrics were, but like they were wildly off uh compared to them but yeah they i mean they were they were investing in relatively safe assets like like i said long-term bonds um mortgage-backed securities and now the problem is like they those those securities were were purchased when interest rates were super low and now they're super high so Nobody wants to buy them um, at this point because they can get a much better deal. So they had, they, they really could not meet their um, their obligation to, to the people wanting to withdraw because they just couldn't sell these securities. Yeah, the mad, the mad rush, um, which, you know, I, I mean, the impact of it, um, you know, immediate impact. And it sounds like kind of reading about stuff over the weekend, um, you know, FDIC is going to make the the guaranteed 250,000 available on Monday, um, mm -hmm. which, you know, if you're if you're a smaller startup, say 10, 20 people like that's probably going to keep the company rolling. Um, if you're a larger startup, say 100, 200 people, that's like. I don't know. It's that's not even a week's worth of um, of runtime. So right. the the other part of that is the um, uh, and they they phrased it that uh, people who had um, 
accounts there were going to receive, uh, it was like a certificate of receivership. And right. as the assets get sold off, those certificates receive dividends from the sale. Um, the, hmm. you know, so there are some numbers going around. People are speculating, like, what are, you know, like, what are these assets going to be purchased at? Because they're going to be purchased at a discount. Like, nobody's going to buy oh, these things sure. at 100%, right? So right. Um, Roku was a, a strong example. I think they they have the highest, I think outside of Circle, they've got the highest declared cash pile um, that was in SVB. It was like $450 million. Mm. And they took, um, their stock took a hit. Um, you know, I... I Actually, I wish I had the number. Um, it, it, it's something pointing at like roughly 80% of the deposits being um, returned was okay. about the size of that, the market discount. Uh, and there was another data point um, uh, around like hedge funds discussing or around insider journalists talking to hedge fund managers, talking about the number being like 60 to 80%. So, you know, if right. that's the case, if it's 80%, you know, so it's the high end of that, um, all of a sudden, like companies have 20% less cash in the bank. Um, yeah, and it's not just companies, it's like 60% of venture capital companies. Like that's, you know, it's, it's a, <laughs> it's a wave yeah. of layoffs if you ask me. I mean, I, I, and not only that, it's, this is going to ripple through, not just the tech uh, industry, but I, I think it'll have implications across the broader economy as a whole. And I'm on the edge of my seat waiting to see what happens next. But yeah, uh, it's kind of, oh, sorry, you, you're going to buy some, buy some of these uh, discounted, discounted <laughs> deposits. <laughs> I don't think I have the, the, the money to buy these or I don't even know if I want to, but, but uh, okay. Moving on enough of that stuff let's talk about getting an unfair advantage in your tech career and how do we do that well we consume content for other roles this is an article by matthew groman the title is want an unfair advantage in your tech career consume content meant for other roles um now i'll be honest i was uh the the, the premise is interesting here the article was um Honestly, kind of felt like it sounded like it was created by GPT, but I think this is pretty good advice and nothing. Well, what do you think about this, Rick? Before I go into my spiel, I want to hear what you have to say. You know, uh, reading the article, there's a, a bullet list um, towards, I don't know, roughly the middle of it where they talk about some other roles you might want to go undercover in to learn about if you work in tech. Um, and the list, you know, they talk about product, uh, you know, it does look like it's GPG generated, um, product, <laughs> recruiter, HR, QA, data science, sales, customer service. Um, and, and just thinking about it, like that all makes sense that the more, the more I have learned about things in uh, tech outside of just writing and shipping code, the more the more context I have, and the more I can communicate with others, um, and you know, not be a, a siloed basement dweller. 
um, and, and the more I can contribute. So that much, yeah. mm-hmm. like I've got a data point, this absolutely has worked for me. So yeah, I, I sure. like, I like the juice. My, I mean, my data point early in my career, I, I had a background in graphic design and, and UI design. So from the very beginning, I had, um, that perspective as I worked with designers, you know, writing front end code, they would design things and hand it off to the engineers. The engineers would code. It was back and forth. There was always a very, um, in, in my sense, between a lot of designers and engineering, there was like an antagonistic relationship there. The Mm -hmm. engineers never liked what the designers came up with and the designers never liked what the engineers, uh, uh, turned their designs into, but because I had been on both sides of that fence, you know, I had a lot more empathy for the designers and I was, I feel like I was able to work with them a lot better. And even now, you know, nothing has really broadened my horizons more than starting my own business and having to play all these roles. Cause before there was always this sort of, um, I don't want to say it's an antagonistic relationship between like engineering and product, but there's a sort of like a push and pull relationship. And I was always very staunchly on the side of engineers most of the times, but, but being, being a founder and especially bootstrapped founder, being in charge of product and sales and all of that, I'm like, I'm actually more on the side of product and sales and everything more so than engineering these days. Uh, and so that's how much like perspective I've gotten just from doing that. What do you think keeps people from reaching out? And we're assuming that these are people in engineering. Um, like what, what's that, what's that piece of resistance? What's the hurdle that, that maybe makes this article, um, I don't know, stand out as, as something worth talking about. I feel like it probably just never occurs to people to do that. And there's also a bit of human nature here and, and tribalism and kind of sticking with your, with your group. And there's a camaraderie among engineers that, doesn't really exist across the whole company. It's like, yeah, we're, 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 um, we have a unique set of challenges and circumstances here that the rest of the company doesn't share. And it's hard to talk about those things with other people in the company because it is so technical. And I think it just, yeah, mostly just doesn't occur to people to, to do this kind of thing. And, and I think a lot of companies, there isn't an active push to get, not just engineers, but other everybody in the company to cross pollinate in this way. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I've got a memory of uh, uh, working with you in that back room, and you know, there was there was definitely a, a pressure um, when you walk through that doorway on on mm-hmm. both sides that there's something something different going on in the engineering room. Yeah, I mean, it's almost like a. To, to the rest of the company, I, I'm sure it seemed like a black box. Like nobody really <laughs> knew what we were doing. I, they had an idea, but it was, like I said, it, it's just kind of impenetrable to the layman, most of the things that we do and most of the challenges that we're working on. 
So rounding it up, if you're in engineering and you want to, well, so what's the, is there a benefit here other than, I don't know, you know, don't be a weirdo. Like uh, what, you know, I guess what, what could somebody who, who is going to take the time to invest in learning other parts of the business, what would they get out of that experience other than now feeling out of place in the engineering room? <laughs> well, um, so according to the article, they, they have a sort of, uh, it's not really a bulleted list, but they have a series of headlines about some of the advantages. Uh, number one, it boosts your empathy and understanding. Two, each role thinks they do a lot and are underappreciated. Helps to avoid underestimating the importance and difficulty of other roles. Helps to clear up misconceptions about other roles. Helps you to be strategic in your interaction with people in that role. You know, I think it all really comes down to, this is why I feel like it's sort of GPT-ish. It's got a GPT-ish kind of vibe but I'm, I'm sure this guy wrote it by hand, but um, it really just comes down to efficiency. Like if you can empathize and understand the other teams that you're working with, you can communicate more effectively. Um, you can work more efficiently. It, it just really comes down to that, I think. And also don't underestimate happiness in the workplace. Mm. Uh, that if people are unhappy, they quit. I mean, that's pretty much the number one. That's that's one of the main reasons why people quit, I think, is there is some unhappiness coming from somewhere. And a lot of that is coming from tension with other teams. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, go study a different role, be happier, get along better with other people in the company, um, be able to deliver your projects more accurately, get noticed and get paid. Heck yeah. All right, moving on. React is holding me hostage. This is an article that th this type of article is becoming a more common lately, I think, which is people getting a little uncomfortable with React for one reason or another. I'm not sure if it's the new hooks feature or what, or the fact that there's newer uh, libraries out there that are just a little more ergonomic and performant, but you know, I wanted to pick this one up. I, I uh, never miss a good opportunity to poo-poo on React, although I do like React. Um, I think the initial, you know, when React first came on the scene, it was so elegant, uh, so smart, so beautiful. This idea of a, <clears throat> your view as a function of state. So you can describe your entire UI as like, some piece of state, you know, you're, you're on page, you're on the invoice page. Uh, the invoice number is one, three, seven. Um, the user has clicked, has opened this dropdown that, that all can be described through data, which we're calling state here. And you can render your entire UI just with a function that takes in that data and spits out the UI. So that's like a really elegant and powerful idea. Of course, there are some problems with that. Um, you, you really don't want to re-render the entire UI tree every time your state changes. It's like really inefficient. So that's where the, the virtual DOM, so-called virtual DOM comes in, where React does some, some diffing to figure out, okay, what actually needs to be updated. 
And, and so as you may be aware, React started out uh, with this like class-based interface. So your, your components were classes and, and you had a bunch of methods like component will mount, render, uh, just kind of random, random little lifecycle methods like that and has since moved to function components. And so the question becomes, okay, now that we're using functions for components, how do we manage the life cycle? And so they kind of went away for a few months or years and came up with this idea of hooks, which are these weird little reactive thingies that you put in your functions and they hold state and you can update them with like custom hook update functions and and that's kind of cool it has some advantages some readability advantages but um it's also a little awkward to work with i think and I, and there's some weird things that you need to do to catch certain cases uh like there's use callback there's use memoize or use memo rather and things like that so uh so this article in particular now that I've now that I've given the entire history of React, this this um, article in particular talks a lot about um, memoization, and one of the disadvantages to the React model is that you need to. Well, if you if you are doing some like calculation in the component, every time you update state, that calculation re-renders. So you've got to be very careful about what you're doing in the component. And it's, it's not so simple anymore because there's all these little edge cases, uh, you know, things you got to watch out for uh, when it comes to reactivity and performance gotchas. And so what, what seemed to be like a, a simple and elegant solution kind of has turned into this weird, weird API and this weird like mess of Java, like not quite JavaScript. I mean, it is JavaScript, but like hooks don't really feel like JavaScript. They feel like their own thing that you have to learn. Uh, so it's a, it's kind of a weird mental model, I think. And people are coming to grips with that. What, um, like what's, you know, the article's talking about like I'm trapped in React, like I'm trapped in this in this dystopia of there was a promise this thing was going to be better, and then it was better, and now there's better things. But I'm I've invested so much time, and my code base is all React, and I'm stuck in React, and they keep changing it. Um, is that kind of a sense of not quite having? I just, I just think about Rails, like Rails. I don't know since three has been relatively the same. There've been a couple changes here and there, but if you knew how to how to write Rails 3, you can basically write Rails 7. Like maybe there's a couple a couple yeah. changes here and there. Um, do you feel like you know someone chose to be like I want to be a JavaScript ninja and then 4 years later they're writing an entirely different language and that's kind of psychologically, um, I don't know, making them feel like they're not in control of their own dev environment. 
Yeah. Do you uh, feel that way? I don't really feel that way. I think like the the problem is like the mental model for React is so much different than like a, a vanilla JavaScript where you really have to know un- understand the runtime and all this stuff and it's very specific to React. And there are, yeah, there are probably better framework, better libraries out there. I mean, really, React hasn't changed the whole lot. The biggest change is really the um, the switch from class components to function components, and you can still use class components. But um, and they were back. They, you know, they made sure to make this stuff backwards compatible, which I think is why it's a little awkward. Maybe they would have done something differently if if they didn't need to keep that backwards compatibility. But now my takeaway from this as a uh, closure script developer is a lot of the, so so there's a wrapper around React for closure script called Reagent that's been around for at least seven years, maybe eight years, um, or maybe nine years at this point. But, but it came out pretty early, pretty not, not long after uh, React itself was released. And the, the whole hooks thing was, for anybody that's used Reagent, it looks very familiar and it looks almost exactly like how Reagent works. So I'd, I'd be surprised if the React team didn't uh, draw some inspiration there, but a lot of the issues with React go away with ClojureScript just because of the kind of semantics of the language. And to, my takeaway is that like React was the right idea, it was just using the wrong language. So, you know, part of part of the problem that this article talks about is this uh, this problem where every time your your state updates, it kind of has to redo these calculations or re-render the component. And uh, the React team doesn't want to memoize uh, every component by default because you know checking the props, diffing the props every time would be expensive. But um, but in Reagent, uh, because of the the persistent immutable data structures that are in closure, comparing the equality of the props is as, as simple as like a pointer comparison, essentially. So it's almost free. So you don't have this problem with uh, with React and ClojureScript. And, you know, Clojure has these uh, reactive, uh, these reactive primitives called, called atoms in the language. So, so using those in, in React feels quite natural as well. So, so again, you know, the a lot of the awkwardness I think in React is just an issue with JavaScript itself, and not so much a problem with React. You're using the wrong language. Get over it. Get with ClojureScript. Matt will lead us to the promised land. Now that's pretty much my takeaway from, from all of this. I like it. Where do I sign up? Uh, yeah, see me after the show. I'll get you signed up. Okay, moving on to the next article. We have an article here about copywriting uh, AI comic books. So apparently somebody tried, somebody created a comic book using AI. Uh, God help us. And they're trying to copyright it. And apparently the copyright office is saying, no, 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 you can't do that. 
Have you have you uh, read this article, Rick? Yeah, I read through the. Um, there's maybe a four page. It's it's kind of a summary. Um, uh, this is the letter from the U.S. Copyright Office to the author of this comic book, um, and you know it's it's kind of interesting that that I guess um, the author um, uh, Christina Koshinova submitted uh you know she wrote this comic book and submitted a copyright uh i don't know whatever filing and and the copyright office is like oh yeah sure here you go and then they the copyright office some i guess they were on social media or somebody made them aware that that this this work was um the, at least the art was generated through uh, mid journey. Mm-hmm. And so then they, they go back to, um, to Miss Kashanova and say, Hey, um, you didn't disclose that this was not entirely human generated. Um, we're going to need more information from you. And our, our current uh, idea is that we're going to um, take away your, your copyright protection for this. And so there's a, a, it, I don't, it wasn't like a, a court battle, but it was, you know, sounds like, uh, there was some, some legal interpretations back and forth and yeah. the, you know, the argument from the artist side was, well, this is, it's really a composition. The entirety of the work is a composition. It's, there's, you know, characters that are, you know, drawn by AI. Um, they've been Photoshopped and touched up and tweaked in certain ways to, to you know, make them the way that I want them to be. There's text. There's you know, graphic novel compilation elements of pains and and uh, you know, in in its entirety, it should be a work. And mm-hmm. the way that the copyright office came back is said they said, well, what we can do is we'll grant you copyright on the words that you used, where you use them. Um, and the, I believe it was the, um, the, like, how do you describe it? with the graphic novel? You've got like different panes, different yeah, areas, like, yeah, like the, the, panel the layout composition, the right. layout. Thank you, Matt. <laughs> that can all be copyrighted. The art that you've chosen to use cannot be copyrighted and you do not own that work. So hmm. While um, the the author does own the name Zarya of the Dawn, uh, I assume the character's name is Zarya. Um, right. Someone else could create a um, a der- it wouldn't even be a derivative work. They could create their own work using the image of this character, call them something else. Hmm. And right now, the copyright office doesn't have a problem with that. Yeah, this is a this is a weird one. I when I initially read this story, I didn't really have a lot to say about it. I thought, okay, it kind of makes sense, you know. She didn't actually create this character. Um, a computer created the character, but but the AI is really just a tool that the artist is using. So the artist had to prompt the AI in some way to to create this character, right? Uh, in the same way that um, engineers don't don't copyright applications, we copyright the source code that that runs the application. So, are, 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 is this woman able to 
I don't know, copyright the prompts or, or whatever that she used to create these images. I mean, obviously there was some work done on her part to actually generate these images. So it's not like an AI just kind of like on its own <laughs> created all these images and things. Uh, the, the, the artist use the AI as artists use any other tool. And artists use computers as tools all the time. Uh, you know, think about Photoshop, for example. There's filters you can apply to yep. uh, to images. Um, is that no longer copyrightable because you used a computer to like automatically enhance the image in some way? Um, it, it's kind of a blurry line for me. I'm not really sure what to make of this. You know, the going through the article, they get into the legal technical jargon around boundaries of things. And I don't, I don't pretend to think that that has anything to do with reality and more has to do with like the thousand years of case law. So, mm -hmm. you know, I, I guess, you know, the question in my mind around this is as copilot and, and similar tools become the standard. I mean, and GitHub said like 50% of new code is now written by Copilot. Um, hmm. As wow, as tools that's... like that become more and more prevalent, isn't that frightening? Like <laughs> that is kind of crazy. <laughs> you know, part of it is it's like it's very boilerplatey. Um, yeah. So like, I don't think 50% of of actual lifting is done by it, but you know, other right. totally separate argument. I want to know, like, especially as an owner of a company that that the code that is written um, by my team is, is mine. It is copyrighted. It is like, this is the work that we have put together. And, you know, let's say it leaks out. Um, I don't know, maybe, maybe I can protect it as a trade secret. Maybe I can, like, I need to protect that in some way. And this is one of those lines of defense that, um, you know, is getting removed. So like even open source libraries, if they are building using these generators um, and they, they slap, I don't know, an MIT license on there, like does that MIT license actually apply? Um, yeah. Yeah, this, this is, uh, I don't know, it's a pretty hairy subject. I'm sure our legislators will figure it out. And I have 100% faith. Hey, that's what we US, came to do. In the U.S. government to figure this shit out. Uh, and with that, I think that's going to do it for this week. That was our that was our legally required AI article for the week. And I think that's going to wrap it up for us. Unless you got uh, anything else you want to add today, Rick, I, I think that'll do it. Um, yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's all I got, Matt. Um, yeah, I'd say thanks. Thanks for everybody who listened and paid attention. And, you know, if you have any thoughts for things we should cover, um, get in touch with us. Can they do that, Matt? Is there a way for them to get in touch with us? Um, no, you just have to leave a review, like, and subscribe, leave a, leave a four, five star rating. I, I think it is on iTunes and, um, and, or just leave a yeah, leave a review and tell us what you want to talk about. I love it. I love it. Yeah, you're not going to get siloed in Discord. Everybody is going to see what you talked about. We're going exactly. to see it. It's going to be simple 
and it's going to be um, indexed on the search engines. All right, folks, uh, we will see you next week, same time, same place. Uh, well, maybe a different time, but same place for sure. Later.